0: This morning's readings are in Matthew 9:35 through 36 and Luke 15, 3-7. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So he told this parable, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance.
1: This is from um, John 10, verses 1 through 4 and 11 through 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep.
2: You know, in the High Church tradition, and and High Church simply means uh, the liturgical tradition, the formal liturgy of uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Episcopalian, uh, some Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, some Presbyterians. <sighs> I want to say that's the high church tradition. We're low church, but that's not what we're called. Uh, we're called the free church. And it's funny because people of the free church um, think of the high church as not so free. And people in the high church think of The free church as, or pardon me, the, uh, yeah, the free church as low. (laughs) So um, we have different views of each other than we do of ourselves. But in the high church tradition, which I respect, when they read scripture like that, after reading it, they say, the word of the Lord. And the people say, thanks be to God. So we're constantly giving God thanks for revealing himself to us through scripture and giving us the opportunity to, To know him and to come to him, uh, to approach him as we do now. So, you want to open up your heart to God. Uh, He's here and you can trust him. Um, I wouldn't say, trust me. I'd say, don't trust me. Um, And you may not be able to trust that many other people in your life. We had a sales guy at our front door this last week, three different days in a row, and I don't trust him. But I trust God, and I trust this moment with God. Um, So just between you and God. No one else is in this, this magic circle right now. It's just you and God, all right? So let his grace flow into you with each breath. Breathe deeply. Savor his presence. If your mind wanders, which it will, gently bring it back. Use your breath as an anchor in this present moment. And if you just remind yourself, I'm here, and I'm here now, so is the Holy Spirit. He surrounds you, he ministers to you, he cares for you. And uh, we'll spend just a few minutes in silent prayer. That was kind of fun. We had a little beep of a horn for our second bell. <laughs> Um, that's kind of a nasty sound, isn't it? Beep. Uh, In in Europe, uh, I remember in Italy, there were uh, two different horn sounds. One was the really aggravated get out of my way, and the other was that little beep. um, Just meant like a gnat to annoy, uh, I think. Anyway, uh, perhaps you've heard of the catacombs in Rome. Do you know what I'm talking about? Good. Okay, um, I've taken uh, trips through a couple of them, and uh, they're underground burial. for me, yeah, they're underground burial sites. Uh, a labyrinth, a labyrinth of tunnels and halls, uh, with rooms opening off to the side here and there. Uh, easy to get lost in, the, in them. Uh, fortunately, uh, the way that the tourists are supposed to go is all lighted. Uh, but it's very, very dark. Otherwise, you just peer into some of those openings and you see just black darkness. Um, also, uh, along the hallways, there are all these niches in the wall where the bones or bodies of the deceased were were placed. <clears throat> there are paintings and engravings, uh, sometimes very nice frescoes in certain places because there are... Are larger areas, and it, it was said for a long time that the Christians met there during times of persecution. But I don't think we really have any evidence to that fact. Uh, but some of these um, engravings and and um, frescoes are full of Christian symbols. Uh, they appear near where believers were laid to rest. And the more common symbols are the fish, the, uh, the anchor, which also is cross-shaped, uh, perhaps a ship in some cases, a dove. Uh, and you know the, the importance of the fish to early Christians, correct? The ichthus. No you don't, (laughs) not all of you do. Okay, Um, the the Greek word ichthus is fish and the letters are iota, chi, uh, theta, upsilon, sigma, I think. Um, And each of them become an acronym in Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. All right, so Christians would use the fish symbol as a way to identify themselves. Um, that was before Darwin started eating them. Uh, but the fish symbol was really uh, simple. It was like two uh, rainbows, one upside down, connected. So it is said that if you were uh, on the road, and you bumped into a stranger, and you begin to talk, and you think this stranger might be a Christian, you take your walking stick, and in the, the dirt, you draw this little half circle. And if it's a Christian, they complete it by making the fish, the ichthus, the symbol of your faith. Okay, but that is like tangential. Forgive me. Uh, Another common symbol that goes back at least to the third century, so this would be you know two hundred something, was the Good Shepherd, and it's a shepherd facing the viewer with. a sheep slung over his shoulders, just as in our reading this morning. The image, prior to the time of Christ, had already been branded into Israel's imagination. I mean, most famously, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that, that whole little psalm speaks of his care for his sheep. Um, several more times, this illusion appears in the Psalms. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. But this image was also used of Israel's leaders. Um, Pardon me, there's one more uh, passage from Isaiah about God being our shepherd. He shall lead his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Of Israel's leaders, um, as the image passes from God, the, the supreme, to those that represent him, we're told that he chose David, his servant. He took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hands. And and we get this idea that David's care for his father's sheep is what qualified him to be a leader in Israel. The king who was his predecessor was a warrior, but God wanted a shepherd. And the shepherd was the man who was after God's own heart. In the prophets, the image of the shepherd is also used for the failure of some of Israel's leaders. Uh, Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And Ezekiel, uh, in an extended uh, chapter, chapter 34, says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to them even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? That's a good one. We miss a lot when we read John chapter 10, and we miss it because we do not know that much about shepherding in Israel in the time of Christ. I mean, we do not personally, and we can find out because it's it's all over the place now, but Shepherding was not an industry like it is here in the U.S. Uh, We breed sheep for food, but they bred sheep not for food, but primarily for the wool. There's a story in 2 Samuel, and I I won't go into it, but it's well told when Nathan the prophet confronts David regarding uh, a very serious crime he committed and Nathan tells him a story, and in it is this poor man who has a sheep, and the sheep is like a household pet, um, almost like a son or a daughter to the man. And this is more how shepherds were with their sheep. They would spend years with their sheep, and they'd have names for them typically, and, uh, and they would call their sheep, and the sheep would recognize their voice and come to them when they called Something we don't understand in John 10, perhaps, is when Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Um, When shepherds were keeping their sheep out in the open countryside, they would fabricate these small makeshift uh, pens for them, but there'd be no gate on them. When the sheep were coming back from uh, being out to pasture, the shepherd would put his rod uh, over the gate so that the sheep would have to come in one or two at a time. And that way, he could count them. But also, he would be able to check their fur uh, to see if there's any wounds, any burrs. You know, he can uh, you know, uh, keep his sheep healthy this way. Well, God says, again through Ezekiel, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. So here's the rod and the people passing through, and God's able to inspect them as they come through. Well, when the shepherds were out in the open countryside at night, it wasn't the rod that kept the sheep in the pen. The shepherd would lie down in that that doorway he was literally the door to the sheep no sheep could get out except they'd have to climb over the shepherd's body so they're they're not going to escape at night and no predators are going to get in except over the shepherd's body he's literally the door so you know Jesus says here I am I'm the door and I keep my sheep where they belong I keep the predators out years ago a book was written by Philip Keller entitled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Has anyone read that? OK, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's wonderful, isn't it? It's, it's very schmaltzy, uh, I think. It, it's a little too sentimental for my, but it has helped a lot of Christians because it's given much more insight, especially into this chapter of John. You can really appreciate it more if you have that, that background. So I would recommend it uh, for that. I'm so sorry. I almost said something else. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're a person of deep intellect, I'll recommend something else. But I know all of you are people of deep intellect, so I won't say that. I'll just say read it as a fun read. Okay, I, okay I'm sorry. I did say it. Um, th- the point is that there's more to the image than what we see on the surface. And of course, that's what John is trying to, to bring us to. Uh, there's no surprise, then, that we'd, we've, we would find the shepherd image in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, like when the crowds seemed to Jesus to be like sheep without a shepherd, as as Rich read, Jesus is looking at the crowds through the shepherd's eyes. And this is how they appear. Notice that, that, that this is something that goes on in Jesus' own mind. He doesn't say to his disciples, look at these sheep, or, or these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He's thinking this. So at some point he, he told someone this, but this is what he's thinking. What he says to his disciples is, look, the harvest is great and the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers out into the fields to harvest. Um, but, but this is how he sees, because he sees through the eyes of a shepherd. Uh, Again, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, and and I really like this because he lumps several animal metaphors together. And if you think about all of them, take time and think about them. They're pretty cool. But he says to them, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheep, wolves, uh, serpents, doves. What an interesting uh, collage in Luke uh, chapter fifteen, Luke tells three parables of something that's been lost. Now the whole thing is that when something lost is found, people rejoice, especially if it's important to them and and the Jesus has just been criticized because he is receiving sinners as as uh guests as um, as a rabbi would receive disciples. And this really bothers the, the uptight righteous people, self-righteous people. Um, and not only is he receiving them, but he's eating with them, which forms a bond in their culture and, and mind. So uh, they're upset with Jesus, but he's saying, look, these people were lost, but now they've been found. You've got the whole thing wrong. Your attitude's all wrong. You need to be rejoicing. So he tells about a widow who has 10 coins, but she lost one. Now, in that particular story, um, the coin is rather impersonal. The other two parables are more personal. But the, you know, um, we can imagine her desperation and how important that coin is to her. But one coin is like any other coin of the same value. They're interchangeable. Um, if I'm looking for a quarter, uh, it doesn't matter if I find the shiny one or if I find the, the grubby one. Uh, you know, I just need that Coca-Cola and one more quarter to get it. So uh, the coin is impersonal. But in the parable of the sheep, again, which Rich also read, the, the shepherd has lost one out of 99. It's not that that, that sheep is replaceable. It's that that sheep is known by the shepherd. The shepherd cares about that sheep and so goes after it. And I, again, I love the picture. Of when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders. Sheep are not strong, ferocious animals. Um, they, they are rather fragile compared to the predators that were after them. And uh, so here's a sheep that's been lost. Maybe it's, it's lying down because it's exhausted. The shepherd picks it up. It goes on his shoulders. He takes responsibility for bringing it back because he cares. And then the third parable is about a father who's lost his son. And, and Luke then brings us to this most intensely personal picture of all the father and the son, the broken relationship. The son's as good as dead to him, and suddenly he's alive again, and he rejoices. Um, and the reason why I go into what Luke does in amping up the, the intimacy is because that's exactly where Jesus begins with the good shepherd. John heard Jesus say more about the shepherd and the sheep than what we find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, in fact, Matthew's comments are mostly just merely footnotes. Luke is a little bit more involved with uh, his illusion of the shepherd and the sheep, but John heard much more. Um, and whereas the disciples, the first disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Jesus called them to be fishers of men and women. But his allusion to Peter at the end of John's gospel, he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He makes all three of these, gives them all three of these, um, what, objectives. Feed my lambs, the little ones, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Matthew and Luke have the shepherd carrying the sheep on their shoulders, but John's image is much more intimate. And if you and I read this, and we miss the fact that Jesus is inviting us into an intimate relationship with himself, as intimate as his relationship with the Heavenly Father, then I think you know we've, we've missed the one truth that's likely to give us the most hope, the most reassurance, and fill out our life with God the most richly. I mean, it's one thing to live for God out of duty. It's one thing to, to say, okay, a good Christian does this and this and this and this, and then go do all those things. And, and we're going to see in Jesus how he illustrates how to really go about all this. There's an important verse here that we don't want to miss. In verse 6, John says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what it was he was saying to them. Well, initially, no one understood what Jesus was communicating. Their first thought would be, well, everyone knows that. So what? Um, Yeah, the, um, the one who does not enter by the sheep uh, the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way. Is a thief and a robber, of course. And there, there were a lot of them out there. Uh, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, well, of course. And the gatekeeper opens to him. Yes, we know that. In other words, it, it would be like, um, like me saying, some of us ride on the bus to work. Do you see the great truth hidden in that statement? <laughs> and you'd say no. Um, how about you know some clues or some hints or something, or can we play twenty one questions? Um, the The reason this is important is because John is illustrating for us what he is doing. John, what are you saying here and And he's saying, "Well, there's more than what we've seen, and assuming that his readers are familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke one of them, or two of them, or all three of them, he he is saying that he presents a statement much like they would present a statement of Jesus. But he indicates a depth that they missed. But wait, there's more to the story. And um, in this case, that draws attention to the next stage, That Jesus takes his listeners. Jesus makes, of course, statement. And people are, well, so what? And knowing that they don't understand, he goes on. All right, now he intensifies or he deepens or he broadens so that they can understand. And once you have understanding, you can go back to what he said originally and say, oh, now that makes sense. I thought he was talking about sheep and shepherds, but he's not talking about sheep and shepherds and now I see so um, the 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 first stage is to say something and leave them guessing the second stage is taking them deeper into it and since we don't have time to really go through this whole thing there are two there are two statements that he makes that I want to explore. And the first is in verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Um, Well, is he talking about Confucius? Is he talking about Buddha? Is he talking about Moses? Uh, All who came before him are thieves and robbers. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, goes into Jerusalem, enters the temple, and, remember, clears out all the money changers, those who are selling uh, sacrificial animals, doves and sheep, and and those who are changing monies for foreigners. They're all doing it in the temple courts. And he drives them out of there. Do you remember that? Uh, John put that story in the front of Jesus' ministry because he has something else planned for the end. But he didn't want to leave it out. But in the synoptics, it all it always appears towards the end. And after Jesus clears the temple, um, not long after, the priest of the temple and the elders come to him and say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And they know good and well, Jesus does not have authority from the high priest or any priest or any elder, and at this point there wasn't a, a Pharisee who would authorize him to go into the temple and take it over as if it were his. So so they have him, they think. Well, Jesus dodges their question. He turns it around so he has them confused and they don't know how to answer, and they say, Well, we can't answer you. And he said, Well, then I'm not going to answer you. That's the way the game works. So um, he walks away. But then, in each gospel, right after that, he tells a story. And the story is about a man who plants a vineyard. And he's going to take off to another country. So he leaves it. he, He rents it out to people who will work his vineyard. And when harvest time comes, he sends a messenger to say, "Okay, pay rent. Well, they've been working the vineyard. He's been gone. It's like he doesn't even exist in their mind anymore. And somehow they've gotten the idea that the vineyard belongs to them and all of its proceeds. So they tell the messenger, we're not going to pay him anything. He's far away. He can't do anything about it. And they send him away empty handed. So he sends another messenger. And now they're, they're angry, and they beat him up and send him away empty handed. He keeps sending messengers, and they keep abusing the messengers. Until the man says, well, okay, I can't go there right now. Business has me here. They don't respect my messengers. I'm going to send my son. He's my voice. He, He represents me. And they'll listen to him. And they see the son coming, and they say, there's the owner's son, the heir of the vineyard. If we kill him, the vineyard's ours. So that's what they do. They throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And then Jesus says, now what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do about this? Well, he's going to return with soldiers and kill all of those who killed his son. He'll take vengeance on them, and then he'll give the vineyard to someone who returns its fruit to him like they're supposed to, who who does as as they ought well, what's he doing? He's telling them where he gets his authority. I'm the son of the vineyard. I'm the son. In fact, he refers to the temple as his father's house. This is my father's house. I, I don't have to have authority from any anyone I see around here. I have the authority of my father who sent me to say, give him what is his. What does that tell us about? The chief priests and the elders in the temple. It tells us that they are those renters. And after Jesus tells this, this story, they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They got it. This parable was quite clear, at least to those leaders. I'm not sure about the rest of the crowd, but those leaders, after saying, Where do you get the authority? He's just told them in a parable form, where he gets his authority, and he's also telling them, "You have no authority here. you're only renters. You were put in charge of the temple to do the right thing, to, to make it what it's supposed to be. Um, the thieves and the robbers, were, were' not the Old Testament lawgiver or the prophets or the psalmists or the sages, but the recognized leaders. In the temple, they were the thieves and robbers. They had taken it over. Uh, They treated it as if it belonged to them. Remember what Jesus said when he cleared it out. He said, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And and John is giving us more depth to that statement. That was the parable. and, And that was Jesus cleansing the temple. But here John gives us more depth to that, that, um, that these thieves and robbers have taken over the temple as if it were, as if it were theirs. The second statement that I want to um, harp on is in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the father knows me, and I know the father. And I laid down my life for the sheep." The hired hand is belongs to a category that's similar to the thieves and the robbers. In fact, the hired hand, is an accomplice in that the hired hand sees the robbers and thieves coming, and he runs. He abandons the sheep to the thieves and robbers. Uh, and he abandons them, as Jesus says, because he's only a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Well, we have seen this in, in the religious leaders in Jerusalem as we followed Jesus around. He heals a cripple. And, and these religious people confront the healed crippled and care nothing for him. They're angry because he was healed on the Sabbath. They don't care for the man. Jesus heals a blind man also on a Sabbath. A wonderful miracle. And the religious leaders, they don't care about the They care nothing for the man. In fact, they tell him that he was blind because he was altogether born in sin. And they excommunicate him from the temple and the synagogue. They care nothing for him. They're only angry because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And they're probably, probably at, by this time, a little angry because Jesus healed him at all. and They don't like the fact that Jesus works miracles because it gives more credibility to his ministry. And they see it as a threat. Jesus defined the good shepherd as the one who the good shepherd is the shepherd who lays down his life. Now, I've always assumed that Jesus was making a specific reference to his death. I mean, he literally lays down his life when he goes to the cross. Later on, Pilate will say, don't you know I've got the, the power, the authority to release you or to have you crucified? And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't have any authority over me. Um, the only authority over me comes from heaven. Um, and he says, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own. So so this definitely has a reference to Jesus' death. But reading it again, I realize that it means more than that. It, and that is that laying down one's life is not a one-time event it's not a sudden spontaneous sacrifice for others but laying down one's life is a lifestyle of caring for others and when you have a lifestyle of caring for others you lay your, your life down pretty much every day of the week my my dad used to say um, you know um ministry is not a full-time job. I mean, if you clock out after 40 hours in the week, you're probably not called to ministry. Ministry is 24-7. Um, you're always on call. You always have to be pre- prepared. And, and that's why when I first gave my life to God, like really handed it over as an adult, I said, I'm yours, God, and I will do anything except ministry. Laughter i 'm not going to live that lifestyle um, because i, I didn 't like it never having my dad around um, and, and having him you know at dinner time for ten minutes and then he 's off to teach another Bible study, uh, and I did not want that life. I wanted a simple life with you know a median income and my wife and my kids, and come home and not have to think about work, just be with them but there 's this this lane, and, and you know what it is to lay down your life for others. Um, it's a commitment to others. And we lay down our lives every time we leave what we want to be doing to go what needs to be done for someone else. It used to be changing diapers. Well, with grandchildren, it goes back to some of that, too. Um, It means turning off the television sometimes and taking that phone call You've been dreading because oh she just goes on and on and this is falling apart and this is terrible and um, and and pretty soon I'm in that hopeless place with her. It's like oh yes as I give up too. That's, yeah. <laughs> Let's go jump off a bridge. I'm not that great a counselor actually. Um, <laughs> the hired hand performs his service for money. The good shepherd performs his service for love. And Jesus, later on, will tell his disciples, there is no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. It's that laying down of one's life. And he says, and you're my friends. Um, and and um, I guess I'm saying this because I know that you can understand what it is to lay down your life for someone else. It can be for five minutes. It can be for half a day. It can be for a lifetime that you lay down your life for someone. Can you see it that way? Can you see that you are a good shepherd? That you are Jesus in that person's life? That is so meaningful. It's, it's so much more than, oh, no, you know, um, there it goes again, and I've got to go take care of this or take care of that. We don't have to like it. We don't have to like laying down our lives. But if we love, we can't help it. I just, I have to. I believe, I pretty much know that Jesus is still laying down his life for me. It did not stop on the cross, not in my case. He's still laying down his life for me. And I believe he's still laying down his life for you. He lays it before the Father every time he makes intercession for us. And both Romans and the book of Hebrews tells us that he's always making intercession for us. (coughs) Moses laid down his life for Israel when he made intercession for them. And Jesus does that for us. And you have done it for others. I know that you can appreciate this. Um, And why does he lay down his life for us? Why is he laying down his life for us now? Because he never stopped loving us. There's no other explanation for why Jesus would put up with me than that he loves me. And he, and he loves you. If, if this story is meant to wake us up to anything, it's to wake us up how, to how near Jesus is to us. You know, how near is he? Well, there are times when you're riding on his shoulders, that's how near he is. There are times, and in that passage in Isaiah where he talks about, you know, carrying the lambs in his bosom, the only thing I don't like about that passage is the word bosom. And that's because in a Simpsons episode, Ned Flanders, the evangelical Christian, uh, writes this letter to the Simpsons. Um, to apologize for something, and he, and he says um, something about um, his bosom uh, on their behalf. And as soon as Homer reads that, he and Bart start cracking up. And they're just laughing and laughing and laughing. And then when they compose themselves, Bart says, bosom. And they just start laughing again. So, um, however, it is a term, Intimacy. You know, it's one thing to be carried on his shoulders. It's another thing to be carried in his bosom. Um, Or let's say heart. The priest, the high priest of Israel, you know what he had on his shoulders? He had six gems on one shoulder, six gems on the other, so that he'd carry the burden of Israel. Names of each tribe was on each of the gems, and he'd carry the burden of the people into the presence of God. And you know what he had over his... Chest over his bosom, 12 precious stones with the work of an engraver etched on them, the names of all the tribes of Israel. He also carried them over his heart. And sometimes we're on his shoulders, and sometimes we're over his heart where we can hear his breath and feel the heartbeat. But he's near. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for you. You are my friends. And I'm doing this out of love. I'm not a hired hand. I'm not going to run away when you need me. I'm going to always be there. Look, um, there are churches today where the leaders are thieves and robbers. And I'm sorry, but there are pastors who treat the church's finances as if it was their own private bank account. Uh, There are board of directors in churches where members are corrupt, and they take contracts to do work for the church without putting out bids to anyone else. That is illegal in a nonprofit organization. That cannot be done. But it's being done, and it's being done a lot. In other words, the leaders are not there for others. They're there for themselves. And, and there are ministers uh, who <laughs> um, well, no, I won't talk about those horrid people. I'll talk about myself, because there was a time when I loved to teach, but I did not love the people I taught. I went to teach them because I loved to teach, so the audience didn't matter as long as I got to do what I loved. It was in loving a community of people, pardon me, in teaching a community of community of people, I began to love them. But God had to show me that that's not where I began. And, and he had to work that love into me. But once he opened my heart, it became it became easy. as It does once, you know, if you have a baby. You may wonder, can we love our second baby as much as we loved our first? And once the second one is there, oh, we're going to have ten, ten more. Uh-huh. Don't. <laughs> Don't even have four more, but you know, I'm just saying. Um, but you you love them, you can't help it. But but you know, some ministers are in the pulpit for to meet their own ego needs, and some are there for other reasons, manipulating, exploiting, uh, spiritually abusing. Um, and and Jesus says, but that is not how I am. I want you, not what is yours. And, and I want you for the love of you and for the good I can do for you and not for anything that you can do for me. I think that, that John wants to wake us up to how near Jesus is and how much he cares and how much he carries us and that it is possible for us to know his voice. Now We have this built-in caller ID uh, where the phone rings, we answer, we hear the voice, we know the person. Right? We know the voice because we know the person. We can know his voice because we know him and we really can follow him as he calls us. Would you stand, please? May the Lord our God work the love of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of him and the awareness of his presence, into our hearts, into our minds and thoughts, into our bodies, and into these eternal spirits. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.